I have two verses I'm going to be reading this morning. First one is from Ezra 7, chapter 7, verse 10. Ezra 7, verse 10. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. And now, Nehemiah 8, 8. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. This is the word of the Lord. Pay attention. Oh, I've got an old joke I borrowed from a colleague about if you take all the people that sleep in church and you lay them down end to end, they'd get a lot better rest that way. (laughs) When I say pay attention, I'm not asking you to pay attention to me. I guess that's appropriate. It's at least polite. Um, Pay attention, part one today and part two next Sunday. I've got two turns left at bat, Lord willing. Uh, we're looking today in 1 Timothy. Next week we'll look in Acts 20. And together there are three things that the scripture tells us to pay attention to. That's why I've titled it so. So today um, from 1 Timothy, and even before we read it, um, 1 Timothy, why is it called that? So who, who is the writer? Who wrote the book of 1 Timothy? Do you know? That's correct. It's not a rhetorical question. Yes, it was Paul. And who did he write to? That's the easy part. (laughs) Timothy. All right, so Paul wrote to Timothy. So Paul was the um, fiery old apostle, missionary, church planter. Timothy was his protege, um, considered him his true son in a common faith. He was his apprentice, if you will, but then became a colleague because he becomes the pastor of the church at Ephesus. We just taught through the book of Ephesians. Timothy is the pastor, and he's no longer a teenager. By the time of this writing, he's probably in his late 30s or so. And this is advice uh, that Paul is giving to Timothy, his apprentice, now his colleague. And we call this a pastoral epistle. Uh, fancy talk for it's a letter to the pastor. It's advice for the pastor. And so this morning as we look at this, you might think to yourself, but, but, but I'm not a pastor. And I would say, well, some of you actually are. Uh, some of you are elders. Now we make a distinction between teaching and ruling elders, but all elders are to be apt to teach God's word. And so the elders of the church together shepherd the flock. The elders of the church in a Presbyterian church are a leadership team that pastors or shepherds the church together. So some of you are pastors. And you say, okay, well, I'm not an elder, so I'm off the hook. I'll just check out and, uh, you know, look at my phone, and people will think I'm looking at the Bible. I'll check Facebook. Um, But all of you are calling a pastor. This church is in the process uh, of now having extended a call to Nick Garner, and he will come and be laboring among you and in your midst soon, and, 
and uh, eventually you'll have a service to install him to that office, but he'll be working among you before that time. And he and the elders are to set an example uh, that all y'all are to follow. Remember down south you say y'all is two or more, all y'all is the whole group. So, so all y'all are to follow the example. So you, you, you can't just check out uh, by saying, oh, I'm not a pastor. You have an interest in this. You're calling a pastor. Some of you are pastors. And you ought to know a little something about what the pastor's life and work is to be like. Okay, so with that in mind, let's read the scripture. First Timothy chapter 4. We've provided it for you on a full-page insert in your bulletin. We've excerpted verses 6 through 16 on the back of the outline there. If you put these things before the brothers, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Verse 11, command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy, uh, when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, or by so doing, excuse me, you will save both yourself and your hearers. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, this is an interesting thing that, that we're doing, that your people all over the nation, all over the planet are doing. We gather together and we read ancient words, um, words that we believe are your very breath. And we believe that they are profitable and useful, that they correct us, they rebuke us, but they also uh, uh, train us and equip us and so we find hope in these words, and we pray that uh, you will cause us to abide in your spirit, to be attentive to you, and that you would work in our hearts so that we might um, believe in Jesus, and that we might grow in our faith, and that we might honor you with our lips and with our lives. For we pray this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so the exhortation to the pastor is train yourself for godliness. Um, 
two times train is used in this passage in English. In the original language, it's actually two different words that are employed. Uh, the first one, it's the only, in verse 6, it's the only place that this word appears in the Greek New Testament, and it means to be constantly nourished, constantly nourished. And I, I consider myself a lifelong learner. Some people view f- pastors as finished products. And as we saw Wednesday night at uh, Kish Kids Club, and kind of paraphrase Philippians 1.6, that uh, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. So you and I and everyone, we are all in process. We are all works in progress. And sometimes, you know, a new pastor shows up and we think, well, the new pastor is going to be the, the silver bullet, the magic bullet, the panacea, the cure-all. And when, when the new pastor comes, he'll just fix all the problems in, in our church. Of course, some of them we've had for 10, 20, 30 years, but he'll just show up and everything will change. Uh, well, the, the truth is that I'm in process and Nick is in process and seminary doesn't give you all the answers for life and faith, but what it did for me was it equipped me to be a lifelong learner, to continue to be in the Word, to continue to learn and to have that privilege to bring it to others in ways that are faithful to the Scriptures and useful to the hearers, we hope. So the first word for train or educate yourself um, in verse 6 means constantly nourished. The word in verse 7 for train, the, the Greek word, gives us our word for gymnasium or gymnast or gymnastics. It's the same root there, and it means practicing intensely. You think about a gymnast doing gymnastics in a gym, and whether they're on the balance beam or the, uh, a bar or tumbling around a mat or whatever, what are they doing? They're, they're working hard. It's rigorous exercise. It involves discipline. It's a very vigorous uh, un- undertaking. And here in this passage, the apostle doesn't say that that's a waste of time. That's no use whatsoever. He doesn't say that. He says, well, Physical training, while bodily training, is of some use, so there is some use for it. Sometimes Christians are guilty of this body-soul dualism, this false dichotomy, and we think, well, all God cares about is my soul. No, God cares about your body, and Christians ought to take care of themselves. Our bodies are not our own. We've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. So physical training is of some value, but he says that training in godliness is of value in every way, in every regard. Um, Godliness, in verse 7, half of the instances of this word in the New Testament are right here in the book of 1 Timothy. And godliness means reverence and respect for God. Of course, it's holy living. Um, and it's our inner response to the gospel. It's the practical outworkings of our faith in the Lord, and it makes a difference in our relationships. We just saw that in the second half of the book of Ephesians. If we're filled with the Spirit, it changes our parenting, it changes our marriages, it it changes how we conduct ourselves in the workplace as employees and employers. So that's the exhortation of the pastor, bottom line. Train yourself for godliness. And along with that, letter A, points one and two in your outline, um, Timothy is exhorted here to follow words of the faith 
and good doctrine, number one. Follow words of the faith and good doctrine. And uh, it mentions in the passage, verse 10, set your hope on the living God. Set your hope on the living God. So to follow words of the faith, by the way, I make a distinction. I guess it's stylistic, but to me, lowercase f, faith, that's my faith. It's my faith in the Lord. Uh, Faith, capital F, that's our faith, the faith, the Christian faith. And later in the service, we will confess our faith together uh, using the Apostles' Creed. Follow words of the faith and good doctrine. Doctrine is instruction. It's teaching. And he says that you've been following it closely. Keep on doing that. And then set your hope on the living God. Set your hope, because these words, verse 9, are trustworthy, they're reliable, they're deserving of full acceptance. And the life of faith in Christ holds promise, verse 8, for the present life and also for the life that is yet to come. It's the now and the not yet. We're going to talk about that more when we um, believe the gospel through the sacrament of the Lord's Supper this morning. We'll talk more about this idea of the now and the not yet. And Paul reiterates that here, the present life and also the life that is sure to come, being forever with the Lord on the new earth. So remember, I I titled this message, Pay Attention. Pay attention. And here are the two things to pay attention to from verse 16. I I highlighted them on the back of your sermon outline. Um, Keep a close watch on two things, yourself and the teaching. This is the senior pastor's exhortation to the more junior pastor. Watch yourself and watch the teaching. So number three in your outline, letter A, this exhortation to the pastor to train himself for godliness. Number three, watch yourself. And then four, watch the teaching. And they're really not separate points. They're two aspects of the same point. That's what we're to pay attention to. That's what the pastor, that's what the elders, that's what the parishioners, the members of the congregation are pay attention to. Watch yourself and watch the teaching. Watch yourself, and he, he lists several things here, speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. And the fill in the blanks follow right out of the passage. Watch your speech, your words. Um, in the Westminster Confession, one of the things that we confess when we're confessing our sins is that we sin daily How? in thought, word, and deed. And that's pretty much covered right here in the example of his life that he is to set. Speech, it's your words, the the fruit of your lips, your tongue. There's a lot of warnings about the tongue in the book of Proverbs, in James chapter 3, in Ephesians 4.29 and 5.4. gives us cautions about how we use the power of speech. Our conduct is our manner of life, our outward behavior due to our inner belief. And again, we just spent 12 weeks together in Ephesians, walk this way, where over and over in that book it talks about walk as you go about, conduct your life. So speech, conduct, love, faith, I'll not expand on those. Purity, we will camp out for just a moment here. Um, This particular form of this word is used uh, only two times in the Greek New Testament here and in chapter 5, the next chapter of 1 Timothy, where he's continuing to talk to the young pastor 
and tells him to be careful how he treats the younger women in the church, to treat them as sisters. And so specifically, he's telling him to be morally chaste, to be sexually pure in his actions and in his thoughts about the women of the church. You know, I received a good tip way back in my university days in the campus ministry I was a part of. I, I, I had a bunch of dates. I went out with, you know, a bunch of girls. I, you know, I only ended up marrying one woman, one woman man. Um, and, and so early on in my dating life, I don't, I don't know who said this, but they said, treat her, your date, treat her as another brother's future wife. Get that? Treat her as another brother's future wife. In other words, you're going to have a bunch of dates. You're probably not going to marry most of those people. So be respectful. Um, and that's how we ought to treat the women in the church. Uh, not, not only in our actions, but also in our, in our thought life. One of the descriptions in Peter talks about false teachers as having eyes full of adultery. And, and that shouldn't be true of us. That shouldn't be true of believers. That shouldn't be true of Christian men. Uh, so watch yourself. Watch your life, right? And then watch the teaching. Watch the teaching. Those two short, pithy verses that Brian read for us, they're on the back of your outline at the bottom there. I love them. Um, they're so short we can review them. Uh, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. To study, to do, to teach. I think that too is the work of, of the pastor. Pastors are to be given to the ministry of the word and to prayer. They're also to be shepherds. Today we place a zillion more expectations on them. We want them to be uh, counselors. We want them to be CEOs and MBAs and all, all kinds of things. But ultimately, it's to be devoted to the ministry of the word and to prayer. These are the things we pay attention to. These are the things Nick will need to pay attention to. These are the things the elders of the church need to pay attention to. And these are the, the kinds of things that the rest of the members of the church need to pray for their pastor and make sure. Um, I, I, I know a man, a faithful pastor in Michigan, and just a good and godly man, a good teacher of the word, a faithful shepherd of the people. And he received some flack sometimes because somebody drove by church on their way home from work at 4 p.m. and his car wasn't there at the church. You know, that's not checking in with him. That's checking up on him. And, you know, sometimes you, people want the pastor to be in the study and in the hospital and doing visitation and ministering to the poor and taking care of their family all at the same time. And, you know, nobody can do that. So make sure um, session members, make sure that you are encouraging Pastor Nick to take his... Um, continuing education time, his study leave, um, so he can watch the teaching. And Timothy is exhorted here, per persist in these things, persevere these things, keep watch and keep at it. That's the exhortation to the pastor. So some of the takeaways um, this morning, letter B in your outline, the takeaways. Verses 11 through 16, Paul gives a bunch of 
imperatives, a bunch of commands. And the first one is command. Command and teach these things. Command is a military term in terms of giving military orders with full authorization. So timid Timothy isn't supposed to be a, a, you know, a namby-pamby shy worm in the pulpit. He is to recognize that he has the authority of the Word of God. Um, the, the preaching of the Word is the Word in as much as it is faithful to the Word. There is authority. It's not derived from self. It's a drive derived from Scripture and the power of God. And so he is to command these things. He is to, as uh, other translation says, I think it's NAS, says prescribe these things. Prescribe. Think about your physician, and they write you a prescription. You used to do it on a pad, sometimes still do. A lot of times they just, you know, fax it in or email it in or whatever to the pharmacy. But that prescription says you can take this much medication in this strength at these dosages, this frequency, for this duration of time. It tells you exactly how to go about. And, and you know, some of you all that, that continue on medications, you know that they're kind of sticklers about that. And the insurance company won't refill before it's time to refill it. Sometimes it's frustrating. But anyway, that, that's what it means to prescribe these things. And part of the work of the pastor in the session in the church is to prescribe proper elements of worship. Prescribe proper elements of worship. Reading and teaching scripture are mentioned here. I, I ran out of space. Exhortation is also mentioned. The proper elements of worship include reading and teaching scripture. Now, there's a difference between the elements of scripture and the circumstances of, of scripture. God's word tells us what to do in worship. We're to read the scripture, explain or you know, give exhortation with the scripture, uh, and, and we're to teach it. We are to pray. We are to give. We are to have the sacraments. We are to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. All these things are prescribed for us in Scripture. But the circumstances of Scripture are different. Um, the session, the, the elders, as the pastors of the church, they have oversight and governance what goes on in worship. What kind of lighting are you going to have? What time is everybody going to gather to meet? What sort of seating are you going to have? Okay, we know we're supposed to sing songs of praise to the Lord. Which songs? We know we're supposed to read Scripture. Which, which passages? Those are the circumstances of Scripture, and they're, led, they're left up to the wisdom and discretion and prudence of the elders of the church as God's leaders. So, those are some of the elements. Um, Nehemiah 8.8, 8, the other verse Brian read for us. Again, it's on the back of your outline. What did they do? And, and Ezra and Nehemiah were originally one book anyway. What did they do in this instance? It's worth looking at the chapter, but verse 8 alone says, they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly and gave the sense so that the people understood. That's what preaching is about, right? You, you read the word of God publicly, you give attention to that, and then you explain it so people can make sense out of it. So they can make sense out of the word of God. And that can help them make sense out of their lives. I think that's the work of the preacher. Um, one pastor and seminary professor, Ligon Duncan, says this. In faithful Bible preaching, there are always three things. There is the explanation of the Bible so that you can understand it. There's the application of the Bible 
so that you'll understand how what the Bible teaches connects to your life. And then there is exhortation. Uh, that is, there's a compelling call for you to respond to the Word of God. So preachers aren't to just kind of read a commentary. They're not teaching a seminary class. They're to expound God's truth in a way, as I already said, that's faithful to the Scriptures, but it's useful to the hearers, that you can actually implement it in your life. How did we do that in the book of Ephesians? We talked about head, heart, hand, to be, to know, and to do. And yeah, pastors, preachers, they're there to persuade the people of God to think things, to believe things, to do things, to stop doing yet other things. Uh, Also in verse 14, it's mentioned that Timothy has received a spiritual gift, um, probably the gift of teaching, and it was conveyed through the council of elders, and that word in the original language literally gives us our word for presbytery. So this concept of of church government that's formed by a council of elders, a presbytery, is a biblical one. I just spent time, as most of you know, in West Africa, and we are working with aspiring leaders in the church and a handful of the present leaders that we called a council of elders, and among a public meeting of four congregations, we sort of validated and endorsed, these men are your leaders. They have the authority to deliberate and to act on these matters, these thorny issues and problems in the life of the church and to work with other candidates to become leaders in the church. Uh, An effort is involved in this too. This passage talks about toiling and striving, verse 10. Practice these things, immerse yourself to them. I already talked about ministers being given to the ministry of the word and to prayer. That comes out of Acts chapter 6. And, and, and so Timothy is advised to make progress in the faith, and, and it should be, his example, it should be evident. People should be able to see him growing and learning. And uh, again, I'm in process, Nick's in process, we're all uh, still a work in progress, and hopefully you can see that in their lives. Uh, the word for making progress here is kind of akin to the notion of blazing a trail like the pioneers. All right, and I put in there under takeaways the second bullet point. Take care of your pastor. Take care of your pastor, and this congregation seems to be good at that. He's a good servant. That's how the description that's given here. He's a good servant of Christ Jesus. Servant? Well, I thought he was the leader. I thought he was a minister. The Men's Connect Group on Saturdays, which is breaking for the summer, just read a book about the rise of the servant kings, if I got that title right. Well, that's servant leadership. And that's what Paul exhorts young, younger Timothy, not young Timothy, but you know, mid-late 30s Timothy to do here, to be a good servant. And the word servant there is where we get our word for the deacons. Um, it means to minister. I've said this before, but it means to kick up dust as you offer sacred service to God and to God's people. So take care of your pastor. He's a good servant of Christ Jesus. And, you know, you have no need to be exhorted further on this one. The call package that you've given Nick is good and generous and right and fair. He's 
received it. It's been approved by Presbytery. Um, Kishwaukee Community Church seems to do very well in this regard. Um, as a good servant, Nick is to put these things before the brothers. That's where we began in verse 6. Put, if you put these things, what are the these things? Well, the gospel and the truth that Paul's been talking about in 1 Timothy chapters 1, 2, and 3 that we didn't get a chance to look at in the first part of chapter 4. But put these things before the brothers. And again, that word um, adelphoi, it's used dozens and dozens of times in the New Testament, and almost all of those instances, it means brothers and sisters, men and women. There's a couple of exceptions, but far and away, it, it, it means both male and female. So Nick is to put these things before you all in the same sense that Timothy did, and that means leaving a positive pattern and model for others to follow in the life of faith. You know, have you picked up that little handout uh, about the Garner family? They're over on the literature table right adjacent to the office, and the Garners talk about kind of their life and their ministry. It sounds like Nick's ministry um, is going to be one in which he's immersed, hopefully not only in the Word of God, but among the people, with the people, spending time together, building relationships. You all, you all need to see your pastor out in the wild. <laughs> Most of you all only see me here as a talking head, sadly. I mean, I've only been here long enough to start getting my feet wet, maybe start being in use, and it's time to go. But uh, hopefully the Lord will give Nick a, a lengthy tenure among you all, and you can get to know him and his pattern and his model in the faith, instruction in the Word as well as a life example. And the last takeaway, uh, worthy of note, Save the best for last, maybe. God saves sinners. Uh, God saves sinners. There's two verses that, when I read, they fall a little funny on my ear, and they bear at least a word of description. Verses 10 and 16. Uh, verse 10, it, it says, uh, To this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially the, on those who believe, of those who believe. He's the Savior, He's Deliverer and Rescuer of all people. Well, what does that mean? Well, it certainly doesn't mean universalism. It doesn't mean that all people will be saved. Interpret Scripture with Scripture. Not everybody spends eternity with the Lord. So to say that He's the Savior of all people, uh, in brief, I think we can understand that as not the Jew only, but also the Greek and the Roman. All kinds of peoples, the, the Gentile peoples, the non-Jewish peoples of the world. And especially believers, that's effectual calling. There's a general call that goes out to everyone, but the effectual calling is when God, the Holy Spirit, comes and woos and irresistibly draws someone to himself out of a work of special grace in their life. Jesus himself said in Matthew 22, many are called, but few are chosen. So the general call of the gospel goes out to everyone, but God works that effectually in the lives of those that he draws to himself. So, savior of all people, I think we can also understand that is common grace, but those who believe that special grace. That's God's redeeming grace. And God saves sinners. Verse 16 also falls a little 
the second part falls a little funny on my ear. Keep a close watch on yourself and the teaching. Pay attention. Those are the two things, yourself and the teaching. But then the rest of the verse, persist in this, for by so doing, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. Well, Timothy doesn't save anybody. I don't save anybody. Sometimes we think of evangelism and some braggart with talking about converts like notches in his gun belt. Well, we had a rally and, you know, I saved 42 people that day, you know, whatever. Well, you didn't save anybody. Only Jesus saves sinners. In fact, this last takeaway, God saves sinners, is J.I. Packer's summation of the gospel. And I've used that before on the floor of Presbytery when I've been examined. I'll say something like this. Give us one minute on what the gospel is. I'll quote Packer, God saves sinners. And talk about who God is, what it means that he saves, he rescues, he delivers from sin, death, and hell and its penalty. How does he do that? He does it by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And who does he save? He saves sinful people. People, not, not people who have their act together, not people who clean up uh, their act and turn over a new leaf, but he saves sinners. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, still sinners, Christ died for us, in our stead, in our place, as a substitute. God saves sinners. And so when it says, so, um, you'll, and by so doing, you'll save both yourself and your hearers, um, the proof is in the pudding. There's, there's false assurance that's too many times given out in the church. And you'll hear people who are in and around the church, they'll, they'll say things like, oh, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. You'll say, well, tell me about your Christian life. Tell me about your love for the word of God and, you, and your, how you're putting to death the deeds of the flesh and you're living more and more under righteousness. And they don't know what you're talking about. You say, well, I don't really know what all that means. I don't read my Bible, and I don't think it's necessary to come to church, gather with God's people. And, but, uh, you know, I, I prayed a sinner's prayer once, you know, 30 years ago. Well, that's nice. Did it do you any good? Did it make any difference in your life? Well, you know, when I was a, when I was a kid, there was a camp and everything, and, you know, I went forward. So I'm good to go. You know? and, and that's that can be the wrong sort of assurance that can be putting your assurance in an experience rather than in the Word of God. In 2 Timothy, the, the next of these pastoral epistles, a follow-up letter from Paul to Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, lots of you know verse 16. I used it earlier as part of my prayer, I think. Scriptures breathed out by God, inspired by God. But how many of us know verses 14 and 15? They say, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Continue in what you have learned. That's the call of the gospel. Now, I had a dramatic conversion, not, not quite as dramatic as Paul on the Damascus Road, but kind of move in that direction. You know, my kids, they came to know Christ at ages four and five at their mother's knee. They didn't have to turn from a, line of, a life of wine, women, and song. But for me, as an 18-year-old who had partied and done all kinds of terrible things, I lived my life away from God, and God grabbed hold of my life, and he changed me. 
But my faith is not just in an experience that happened for me, yay, 42 years ago. My faith and my trust and my reliance are upon Jesus Christ, his person and work, who he is, that he's the unique son of God, and that once for all time, he died a death that satisfied divine justice and he rose from the dead. That wasn't my faith just one time 42 years ago. That's my faith every day of my life, as it is for many of you. And that's where that slogan comes from, preach the gospel to yourself daily. You didn't need the Lord just once on the day of salvation. You need him every day, every hour, every moment, because God saves sinners. Continue in the things that you have learned. Let's pray. Lord, again, I'm mindful of that um, theologian that said you did not contribute anything to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. And so we thank you, Jesus, that you came and you lived and you died and you rose for us. And God, the Father, that, that you sent forth your Son once at the right time, at the consummation of the ages, you sent forth your son to save sinners because we needed a savior and we could not save ourselves and we do not wish to nullify the grace of God through our own efforts our own good works but we wish to receive and rest upon Christ and the gospel alone because he is a worthy and perfect and blameless and pure and spotless savior And so we come before you pleading his precious name, the precious blood of Jesus Christ that has purchased our redemption and brought us reconciliation, peace with you, O God. Lord, so help us to continue in the things that we have learned, to continue to avail ourselves to the means of grace, the preaching of the word and the right administration of the the sacraments and the life of the church and and also by our our personal devotions and prayers to you. Help us to continue in these things. Give us Holy Spirit stamina. Uh, We have need of endurance, and so we ask your Spirit to persevere with us and to move us on in this process of becoming more and more like you. Lord, you know that we are a needy people, um, and this world is a broken place, that the the nations rage and the peoples devise vain things in their hearts against you and against your anointed. We thank you that you are still on the throne and that you are still good and kind in all your ways and we ask that you would help us to trust you not only in the good times but when it's hard. Increase our faith, we pray. And for those who are grieving or are sick or shut in, we pray your nearness and comfort to them and we also pray that you might use us to bring encouragement to them. We thank you for this church and for our ability to gather and worship you here today. Amen.